0: Hi everybody, this is the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention Podcast. I'm Adam Hoffberg, and today we are joined by colleagues from the VA Business 16, South Central Myrex to talk about an exciting resource that they have developed, three sources both comprehensive and timely, and it is called a Pocket Guide for Clinicians for the Management of Chronic Pain. In today's episode, we'll be chatting with two of the experts from this project, Dr. Aruna Gotumakala and Dr. Paul Sloan. In addition to providing care for veterans at the Houston VA, both of these doctors are with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Baylor College of Medicine. And also joining us today is Dr. Ali Abbas Askar Ali, who is the Associate Director for Education over with the South Central MIRA. So, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. We're so glad to have you on the call. So just starting off with some introductions, Ali, thank you for coordinating this interview. Um, We're so happy to talk about this important issue around chronic pain. Just to kick it off, would you give us a brief overview of your center and some of the work you all do to help spread the word about the the exciting stuff going on at the South Central MIREC?
1: Thank you. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to talk a little about the South Central MIREC. We are located in Vision 16, um, and importantly, our mission is to promote equity and engagement access and quality of mental health care for veterans facing barriers to care, especially rural veterans. Uh, To this end, much of our work is focused on rural veterans. Uh, We have four cores in our MIREC, that being the research, research training, clinical care, and education. I am the associate director for the education core, and Jerry Adler is the assistant director. As the education core, we have several ongoing activities that I'd like to highlight. Uh, The first being a monthly continuing education seminar series titled CBOC Mental Health Rounds. Uh, We have an attendance of about uh, 300 to 600 people uh, nationally each month. Uh, We also have a a monthly newsletter that is posted at our website and emailed to uh, Vision 16 employees for for people who are interested in the topics. This coming year, uh, we're planning two trainings, actually, one on uh, motivational interviewing and the other in dialectical uh, behavioral therapy. Finally, we have the clinical education grant. Uh, Dr. Gautamakala Sloan and colleagues received such a grant in fiscal year 16 uh, to prepare the pocket guide. We are really proud of the grants that we offer to support excellent clinicians developing tremendous educational products, and there's a whole host of these products on our website for anyone who may want to visit. Uh, Each of the products is free to the public. Um, Almost all of them can be downloaded. They don't need any special ordering uh, from us. Uh, We ask people to have them in a format that is easy for the user to use uh, from wherever they are. Uh, We've had an exceptional batch this past year, including the previous podcast I did related to safety planning with Dr. Conti. So while these are our four main activities, Jerry Adler and I are also involved in a number of other educational activities as part of the MIREC. Uh, We received a three-year grant from the Office of Rural Health to develop educational materials related to dementia. Uh, We already have two modules on TMS and uh, three videos that we've also made. Uh, The online modules are also for uh, for CEUs. Uh, This year, I received an additional ORH grant to work with the Office of Suicide Prevention your own Rocky Mountain Myrick with Dr. Baharini uh, leading that effort, and SimLearn to develop a gaming-based training for the use of the VA suicide uh, prevention guidelines. So this is just a little of what we're doing and how we hope to serve our veterans and our staff.
0: Fantastic. And as you mentioned,
1: some tremendous
0: work coming out of the V16 South Central Myrick, and we'll link to some of that. Transitioning today is this brand-new product On chronic pain so Aruna if you could give us backdrop on what is chronic pain you know people throw this term around we all know what pain is to some degree but when we're talking about it as chronic pain give us a sense of what's going on and how it impacts Americans
2: sure Um, like you said pain is a very common symptom in fact more than 100 uh, Americans um, sorry, 100 million Americans are affected by pain at one time or the other. Now, pain can be acute pain, which is usually of less than three months and uh, in duration with a very distinct onset and obvious cause. Examples like injuries or cuts, and surgical incisions, burns, fractures, etc and it is usually relieved with uh, uh, healing of uh, the injuries and the wounds. Then we have chronic pain uh, that lasts for more than three months, well beyond the normal tissue healing time, and without good response to treatment. And uh, this chronic pain is often associated with prolonged physical, functional, and psychological impairment. And it also has a significant economic book cost from a public health perspective, which is usually between 560 to $635 billion, both in terms of direct health care cost as well as the lost productivity. In addition to that, the chronic pain also has impact on the quality of life, affecting many aspects. including daily activities, work, finances, relationships. It does affect many aspects.
0: That's very helpful. And just thinking about pain lasting for three months and just the amount of distress that that could cause, as you mentioned, across many domains of life. So that really paints a picture why this is a very important topic. Turning to Paul, what set you all in motion? Why develop a guide? What need are you filling, and you know where does this resource fit into that picture?
3: Uh, so what we find is that many of the primary care physicians are not extensively trained in pain management per se um, and not just acute pain management but also especially chronic pain. What this product provides is a is a quick portable desk reference on a variety of topics specific to uh, chronic pain that although available in various formats, hasn't been put together in such a succinct sort of way. It's easy to use and and it's tabbed uh, to help get to the topic area that the primary care provider is trying to reference, especially since the PCPs are given very limited amounts of time with their patients.
0: Okay, so we're thinking of this as a pocket guide desk reference, something folks can turn to to use of what's going on with their patient and what kind of treatment options may be available? That's correct. Great. And, you know, I was sort of browsing through some of the introduction parts, and obviously we focus on suicide prevention, and there was a whole section on sort of the relationship between chronic pain and psychiatric conditions, as well as chronic pain and suicide risk uh, more specifically. So, Aruna, will you talk us through that and what do we know, and again, emphasizing why this resource, therefore, is important.
2: The individuals with the chronic pain often have coexisting psychiatric disorders. Like depression, anxiety, substance use, uh, PTSD, etc., which is really not surprising given the impact of pain on the quality of life, like we discussed earlier. And also, the experience of pain itself is more common and intense in patients with psychiatric disorders. Now, research has actually shown that. Same nerve pathways and regions in the brain are involved in processing the pain, as well as the psychiatric disorders. Now the coexisting condition can in turn increase the intensity of pain and also prevents individuals from uh, doing things that will help them with the recovery. Uh, for example, in the veteran population, we know that patients with PTSD often have avoidance as one of their symptoms, whether it is avoidance of the crowds or the activities or social relationships. You can see a similar kind of avoidance in patients who have chronic pain with PTSD, a, avoiding any physical activities or other some of the interventions that might actually help them in their recovery. Uh, And the same experience we also see in patients with coexisting depression, especially when they are depressed and catastrophizing, uh, or if they are anxious, who would be extremely worried and anxious that uh, the pain can actually damage their uh, body even more, or the injuries, and thus leading to avoidance of any such activities.
0: Great. And uh, Paul, could you expand on what we know uh, related to suicide risks?
3: Sure. About a quarter, uh, about 28% to a half of the patients uh, patients with chronic pain report suicidal ideation with approximately 45 to 81 per 100,000 patients with chronic pain dying by suicide, uh, often related to the intensity of pain, coexisting psychiatric disorders and the impact on their quality of life. More specifically, pain triggers, tends to trigger the fight or flight pathways in the brain, as Dr. Bagan was saying. Particularly with severe pain, people can experience panic. And since panic is a, and since the pain is an internal state, it's difficult to escape, and so the natural process is to think about the only available means of escape, especially if hopelessness and helplessness set in and therefore you have suicidal ideation. Aside from the potential state of pure panic, uh, most suicidality actually associated—that uh, that is associated with pain is actually a secondary effect of the depression, which develops from the loss and disability associated with pain. Without the loss and the disability, few people are actually suicidal because of pain. And once these are challenged, the suicidality tends to uh, decrease.
0: Very helpful, and you know we're starting to see why pain is connected to both psychiatric conditions and suicide risk. Aruna, you sort of mentioned a little bit earlier about some of these comorbidities, specifically among veterans. Could you go into some of the unique needs and some of the unique conditions that maybe uh, veterans may be facing related to chronic pain?
2: Some of the uh, medical issues uh, unique to the veterans are combat-related injuries. Especially, it's a polytrauma with injuries to multiple parts of the body, and also the traumatic brain injury related to IED explosives and also uh, other blast injury. In addition, there is a very high percentage of PTSD in our veteran population. Like I said earlier, uh, the PTSD does affect their ability to participate in, active, uh, in uh, activities or interventions uh, that uh, known to be helpful uh, in the recovery. In addition, because of the polytrauma, they're also more prone to use very high doses of opioids and those are at much higher risk for dependence on some of these uh, narcotic medication and uh, also uh, have an impact on uh, on the overall uh, well-being of these veterans.
0: Great. And we're definitely going to turn back to some uh, more discussion about opioid use and how that relates to chronic pain. So I just want to sort of hold that for just a moment. One of the other things that I was curious about as I was reading through this resource is how pain is uh, measured. So, you know, we have sort of this nebulous uh, idea of pain and it is a subjective internal experience, as you mentioned. Uh, Could you tell us how are we sort of assessing for pain in our population and Is this a valid way to look at pain, or or what are your thoughts on that?
2: You know, uh, the experience of pain itself is very individual and complex. We have the physical injuries. That's only one aspect of the pain. In addition to that, there are other psychological and social factors that also play a role. When I say psychological, it is uh, the anxiety, fear, guilt, anger or depression or catastrophizing, all these factors play a role. In addition, the social factors such as the impact of the chronic pain on their work, living situation, relationships that we talked about. So measuring pain is always a challenge because what feels like two out of 10 on a pain scale can be very different for a different person uh, and it can feel as a uh, nine out of 10. So measurement of pain is much beyond the numbers. So we established in our clinic, in fact, on the basis of these complex needs of the patients with the chronic psychiatric condition. We established our clinic on the basis of these complex needs of patients with uh, chronic pain. So when I see patients as a psychiatrist, I do a comprehensive psychiatric assessment to identify any coexisting psychiatric conditions, which includes any substance use disorders, uh, which actually includes uh, more than just alcohol and drugs. We also uh, assess for any tobacco or caffeine use disorders and if they are treated adequately or not. And also assess if any aspect of their psychiatric condition has an impact on their chronic pain. Then I also look at any medical conditions that are likely to aggravate the pain or increase the risk related to opioid use. For example, if the patient has any chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or any obstructive sleep apnea because opioids are known to make these conditions much more worse. In addition, I do a suicide risk assessment. I assess the level of social support and also opioid risk assessment on every patient that I see, doing a very detailed chart review, and also using some specific tools to identify the level of risk for opioid-related aberrant behavior and dependence. Now, based on that assessment, I give specific recommendations to the treating physicians, whether it be primary care physician or their mental health clinician. And I also uh, communicate with them directly to convey my concerns and assessment and the recommendation. And I also provide the primary care physicians with the guidelines for tapering the patients off of the opioids if needed, including the medications to treat any opioid withdrawal. I advise them on the use of naloxone kits if they are considered at risk for opioid overdose. I also give specific recommendations to psychiatrists if there are any medications that are known to be effective for both their psychiatric uh, disorders as well as chronic pain. Throughout this process, we involve both the primary care physicians and mental health clinicians and also try to connect them with appropriate resources if they do not already have uh, been enrolled in such clinics.
0: Thanks for explaining that. You can see that it's a very thorough, comprehensive approach to assessing pain more than simply saying how much pain you're in, really looking at all the other medical conditions and using that to help guide your treatment. Paul, you mentioned this approach of a stepped care model uh, as a way to just triage your patients into the appropriate care based on uh, their, the level of their condition. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is this stepped care approach and you know how do you take this approach with patients with chronic pain?
3: So the model was initially uh, proposed by Gatchel in uh, 2005, and it's been heavily adopted by the Veterans Affairs system, particularly as it relates to the pain, the national pain policy in the VA. So basically, one can think of this model as a as a resource allocation model with the most basic, cost-effective, and broad-based treatment strategies at the bottom, and these are effective for the widest range of patients, especially. Uh, the less complicated cases. In step one, treatment is usually provided uh, within primary care and is mostly done by the primary care f- uh, providers. Other disciplines may provide consultative roles, such as assisting with diagnostic formulation or uh, suggestions about taper schedules. Pharmacological interventions are generally the first line, uh, are generally first line medications, such as aspirin or acetaminophen. And there's an emphasis on education uh, about the condition and the proper rehabilitation uh, that goes along with it. Uh, the goal is to challenge the basic fear avoidance and promote rehabilitation, and is generally self monitored by the patient with suggestions from the primary care provider or the nursing staff. Step two involves referral to specialty pain clinics or pain sur- services. Um, and can include injection clinics, surgical services, or more organized rehabilitation services. Treatment tends to be more effective if it is multidisciplinary, and psychosocial factors tend to play a bigger role in the intractability and the disruptiveness of the pain. Uh, Fewer patients actually require or even desire these more intensive and expensive services, and they do utilize uh, a, a higher level of assessment and treatment. Then we have step three, which is often referred to as functional restoration. This level tends to be the most time and resource intensive level and is reserved generally for patients who have failed multiple trials and treatments at less intensive levels. Uh, Usually patients who require this level of treatment are severely deconditioned and have significant psychosocial factors that impact their pain experience. Treatment tends to be provided in a day treatment or even a residential treatment program and occurs daily for weeks at a time. At the bare minimum, a truly interdisciplinary team should consist of psychology, medicine, rehabilitation, and nursing.
0: Excellent. Well, this sounds like a great model that the VA is implementing, and it, it makes sense. I mean, not everyone needs the same level of care, and we should reserve some of the more intensive care for those patients that really need uh, that that elevation. As you go through the guide, many of the treatment approaches, it sounds like more at the step two, step three level, are pharmacological approaches, and some of those include opioids. Um, and this being a very, very sort of hot topic right now, we have work coming out of SAMHSA and the Surgeon General report on the opioid epidemic. So I really think we couldn't talk about chronic pain without touching a good bit on opioids. So, Aruna, you all provide a fair amount of information and resources around chronic pain and opioid use and how to treat chronic pain with opioids, but also how to prevent opioid misuse. So, could you just sort of give us a a sense of of what the guide says on this topic?
2: Sure. As we know now, opioid dependence and related deaths have become an epidemic and a tragedy. We included actually three chapters to address this issue. And the section on the opioid and substance use disorders helps providers with the diagnosis of uh, substance use disorders and the management. It in, and it includes opioid use disorders. It is a common but unfortunate practice that we see in clinical practice where the opioids are discontinued very abruptly for a number of reasons. Hence, we included some guidelines for opioid tapering. There are some patients that needed to be tapered off of the opioids abruptly, and there are some patients that need to be tapered off much more slower. And then we have a section on opioid safety and risk assessment that provides information on safe practice for prescription of opioids including some of the risk assessment tools, such as the opioid risk tool, and also the dire scare that can be used in clinical practice. And I also included examples of aberrant behavior. And this section also has a list of medications that can result in a false positive urine drug screens, because not every positive urine drug screen is necessarily because of an aberrant behavior. And we also have a section on opioid education and Naloxone distribution programs that VHA has adapted to minimize the risk of opioid related deaths. And it does talk about the different formulary is that are available for Naloxone kids. And it also provides link to the specific uh, uh, programs uh, within the VA and Uh, provides links to some of the tools that are available to educate both our staff as well as the patients and the families.
0: That's excellent. And again, it sounds like something like this is unfortunately very much needed. Going from the general to more specific, could you now walk us through what might case look like with a veteran who maybe has a history or is at risk for substance use or opioid abuse? How might you treat chronic pain uh, with that type of patient?
2: Absolutely. So there are two aspects for veterans who have uh, substance use disorder. One is the management of substance use disorder itself. Um, as I said, after our complete assessment, uh, we do provide education to the patients, including discussion of the available resources, with a clear communication of what our concerns are, and we discuss the various resources, including any rehab programs, and we refer them to appropriate specialty clinics also. Now, for the management of pain, it can be very challenging in this patient population. The first step we do is to determine the cause of the pain, which is done by an internist in our clinic that gives us a guidance on what medications are helpful and if opioids are indicated at all. And if they are indicated, and if they do not have any other risk factors like the obstructive sleep apnea, COPD, or uh, recurrent falls, or any other medical conditions, or active substance use, then we usually discuss about the long-acting medications, especially the buprenorphine, which has a better safety profile than some of the other medications because of its mechanism of action and also its availability in combination with naltrexone, which acts actually as a deterrent against uh, opioid dependence and misuse. So we do have many of these resources within the VA, more so at the medical centers than some of the other places. And we do take advantage of those resources and try to provide the comprehensive treatment for the veterans.
0: One of the other great things about this resource is that has a section on how to assess for opioid safety as well as potentially misuse or abuse uh, among patients who are prescribed opioids. Uh, I was really interested in those resources. I'm sure they might be helpful for providers who are looking to uh, assess for this among their patients. Paul, could you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: So basically what you're looking at is uh, you're looking at behavior. And does the patient engage in risk-taking behavior either with the opioid or other substances, or has there been a pattern of this in the past? With respect to the opiate itself, how is the patient taking the medication? Are they taking it as prescribed? Are they mixing it with other substances that may lead to dangerous interactions? Are they taking more than the prescribed dose um, and then running out early? And either requesting um, early refills or experiencing withdrawal prior to the refill period. This may be especially dangerous as the body is going through a rapid period of dose escalation and de-escalation. Are they using the opiate in order to alleviate psychiatric symptoms? This may be more difficult to tease apart as it requires a higher degree of self-awareness both for the patient and also the provider. Do they have risk-taking behaviors, either with legal or illegal substances? It is standard practice to administer random urine drug screens on occasion to verify uh, a patient's report of abstinence. Even if a patient has not engaged in these types of behaviors, there may be risk factors, both behavioral and genetic, that predict the likelihood of abuse in the future. Uh, There are specific tools, as discussed in, uh, in the book, uh, such as the Dyer, which can inform and to some degree quantify that risk. One should pay more attention to his or her prescription practices uh, with, a higher the, uh, with a higher risk. One should also bear in mind that none of these guidelines are absolute, but are designed to inform the practice.
0: Yes, very helpful. And again, like you mentioned, this stuff may be out there, but you all compiled it very nicely into this resource. So, Again, I encourage our listeners to download this resource and really take a look. But besides opioids, uh, we know there are other treatment options for pain. And, you know, I think it's important that we highlight uh, some of the non-pharmacological approaches as well, which you all have a nice uh, section on in this resource as well. Uh, Paul, could you expand on some of the uh, sort of alternative treatment options for treating chronic pain?
3: Uh, Sure. They can be broken down into different categories. One of the most effective categories of treatment is rehabilitation, and that can include uh, a number of different modalities, such as physical therapy, pool therapy, occupational therapy. You also have your psychological interventions. There are two primary psychological interventions that are very well-developed and extensive, and they include cognitive behavioral therapy, which takes a look at a person's maladaptive thought processes, examines those thoughts and starts and translates those thoughts into something that's more accurate and realistic. People tend to respond very well to that. Also, there is the behavioral component of that, which includes the rehabilitation. Uh, The second major psychological intervention is acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, A-C-T. And that is primarily looking at a patient's value system and includes things like mindfulness which is designed to separate the pain from its ascribed meaning and to redefine the meaning of the pain for that person. So for example, if a person believes that the the pain is all-encompassing in their life, they can start to understand that through their value system that there are other things that are important and they may be able to achieve things that are important, such as being a good father, in different ways than they had previously assumed. Then you have complementary and alternative treatments, and that could include things like uh, biofeedback, meditation, and relaxation, which are look which are very active forms of decreasing physiological arousal, which do, do secondarily tend to help with pain. You can also have you also have chiropractors and acupuncture, and then there's some um, electrical uh, devices such as a TENS unit, which. And electrical stimulators, which interrupt the pain signal traveling through the body up into the brain. And then you also have another category of electrical stimulation called cranial stimulation, uh, which involves producing certain brainwave patterns to help decrease pain and elicit relaxation experiences. And then there are other varying effectiveness treatments that don't have a lot of evidence behind them but are sometimes included in this and that includes certain herbal remedies and magnets, uh, but there's no hard evidence and most likely these are effective due to the placebo effect.
0: Very interesting and, you know, as we've been talking about, there may, there is no one pathway to treating chronic pain and it sounds like we need this whole set of approaches in our toolkit anywhere from, you know, medications to mindfulness to all sorts of interesting approaches. So just bringing it all together for us, we already sort of had a couple mock-up patients, but I was hoping that we could take a look maybe at what it might look like using this guide, going from initial assessment to developing a treatment plan to ongoing management and safety monitoring. Aruna, would you start for us?
2: So we have a 65-year-old gentleman that we saw uh, in uh, in May of 2015 who was referred for non-specific thoracic pain that started more than 25 years ago and that he was on a fentanyl patch and was on opioids for the longest time and the primary care physician was very concerned about uh, the amount of medication that the person has been using. So for this particular patient, the first most important thing is to start with, uh, what is the pain, where is it coming from? So with this uh, section on types and mechanisms of pain can be used to determine the cause of the pain. So in addition to non-specific pain, what we found out was that he also has pain in his wrist, secondary to all the contractures and also hyperflexion and spasticity in both the extremities on both sides that was related to stroke he had in 2009. And then following that, so the chapter on psychiatric comorbidities helped us determine what the psychiatric comorbidities this person has. Obviously, the the veteran has a comorbid depression and he was seen in the primary care mental health integration program. He was on some medication that helped him, but he continued to have significant depressive symptoms and some cognitive deficits uh, which he related to both the pain. And in addition, this chest section also helped us find out the extent of his substance use that he was struggling with. He continued to use at uh, least one to three beers, and he ha- he was using cannabis also to cope with the pain. And then next one is to also and the section on uh, opioid safety re- re- assessment has helped us determine his level of risk. So we use the opioid risk tool, which is included in that chapter, to assess the level of risk based on his personal history as well as a family history. He has a family history of uh, significant substance use and based on that his risk was considered to be very high. And using these specific aspects, then we discussed with a veteran about our concerns about the use of chronic opioid therapy and other risks related to his medical issues including the recurrent stroke, and the risk for falls. And we use that information to communicate with the prime care provider and gave them specific guidelines for tapering uh, the veteran off of the fentanyl in a slow but uh, steady manner. Uh, And we also gave them specific guidelines on using some of the medications to prevent opioid withdrawal and the veteran was seen again in six weeks' time. By then, he was able to cut down the patch to 50 micrograms, and he was very optimistic, uh, except for the withdrawal symptoms. Again, we communicated with the specific guidelines for withdrawal treatments once again, and another three months later, a veteran came back and was much more functional, was reporting, yes, He still had the pain, but his cognitive deficits have uh, improved and his depression has improved. He was more functional. He was able to participate in other social activities with his sister and he was able to gain weight. So what we are looking at is that we may not be able to relieve the pain completely, but we can make a significant improvement in the functional uh, uh, level of the veterans, and also the quality of life. So there are several aspects of this book that can be used towards the patient care.
0: Fantastic. That's a really helpful description of how this guide can be practically used with a patient to help, you know, go through all these steps and, and really find out what approach might be the best. And it sounds like, you know, that's a sort of a very good outcome for him.
3: Paul, would you like to take
0: us through you know, maybe another example of how you have used this guide to help treat
3: and manage a patient with chronic pain? When someone is referred to our pain program, it's helpful to know a a lot more about what's going on with the patient. What the pocket guide does is it allows the primary care providers to inform the consult process. And so it allows, it demonstrates to the primary care provider what we as specialists are looking for when a patient comes in. And so, as they look through the different sections and see what's important in treating the chronic pain, then that gives us a, a better basis. When somebody's referred to us, uh, thank you, receive the comprehensive medical exam, as Dr. Gautamakala mentioned, to describe or to have a better idea of what is the actual cause of the pain. They receive a psychological evaluation where we determine the psychosocial factors that are impacting the pain, things like, as she mentioned, the comorbid psychiatric problems, but also family relationships, which may impact the the pain experience. And then the book also gives an overview of the types of treatments that are available not only just to the primary care providers, but also to other disciplines like psychology, where we discussed um, the different interventions I I spoke about before, the psychological intervention. And um, many, many providers who are not specifically educated in pain can use this book to help inform um, how they consult other services.
2: And in addition, Some of the patients may not be willing to come here or may not have the kind of resources that we have at the medical center. So we believe that the providers out, especially out in the rural areas, can use this book both to educate the patient on some of the concerns, some of the issues related to their pain or psychiatric comorbidities or their opioid use disorders if they have, And it also provides a a good uh, overview of uh, some of the basic aspects of uh, pain assessment and also how to approach a patient with pain in a non-judgmental manner. That's what I think the guide would also be very helpful.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And as we've been saying from the beginning, this guide could be for primary care providers who may not be experts in pain, but this guidebook is designed to sort of help take them through it, help make them feel more comfortable, help educate themselves and their patient. And again, we appreciate you all so much for taking time today to explain this to us. And Ali, thank you for connecting us and, and you know, sharing this resource so we could help get the word out. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, before we close for today, do we have any final thoughts from each of you?
2: No, I do not uh, have anything specific except that, Pain uh, is common, we see it everywhere around us, both at work and own environments. And I believe that uh, there's enormous progress in how to manage the pain, we know so much more. And I sincerely believe that we can use this information to better care for patients who are experiencing this pain uh, that's affecting their quality of life. We have been seeing that improvement in our clinic uh, every day.
0: Great. Well, thanks again. And listeners, we will post a link directly to this pocket guide. As we mentioned, this is a PDF file you can download and print out keep uh, as a desk reference. And, of course, we'll also share some other resources um, around this topic and opioid prevention. So that'll be it for the Armirex Short Takes podcast today. Again, we appreciate everybody for listening. You can learn more about um, all this exciting work coming out of the South Central Myrick by clicking on the accompanying link. We would love some feedback. We would love questions. Any comments you have about today's session, we'd love to hear from you. Take a moment to subscribe, give us a review, and share with your colleagues. Until next time, join us for more important interviews on work in suicide prevention.